It's Wednesday, January 10th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Kids, think about all the tomfoolery they get into. When I was a kid, we did Ding Dong Ditch. Other municipalities called it different things. You know what this is? It's when we toss Hostess products into a gully or a ravine and then deny it afterward using the Twinkie defense. In Philadelphia, where tasty cakes are more popular, they, their version of Ding Dong Ditch is to ring doorbells and run away. But in any case, it was all the mischievousness of youth. A similar phenomena was taking place in Brooklyn today within the community of Hasidic Jews known as Chabad Lubavitchers. Their world headquarters are 770 Eastern Parkway. And it was under that address where police found a wild scene, as Fox 5 reported. The NYPD was called to a location best known as a sacred site for the Chabad Lubavitch Orthodox Jewish sect. Authorities say a group of Jewish men who had a long simmering disagreement burrowed through tunnels under several buildings to break into the synagogue. Tunneling into and under a synagogue and then fighting off police who tried to stop it. But why? I could rely on the New York Post's headline there cover subway it does answer a lot of questions but instead i went to 770 eastern parkway myself as part of a gist investigation there there was a heavy police presence there was police tape there were men with payas praying but a little while away but there were a couple of outsiders lingering one who i took to be a lubavitcher i struck up a conversation with this rabbi though i think everyone might be a rabbi this is 770 Eastern Parkway. This is energy of life by every Jew. Wow. Because of here, this is the place of the Rebbe. This is the, the Rebbe means the head of the heart of the Jews. The audio is not great, but the sentiment is there. This is where the great Rebbe of their tradition, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, lived and worked. And those within the congregation today, and even at the time, believed Schneerson to be the Messiah. There are others who don't think he's really dead. Now, his official headstone says 1902 to 1994, but some still argue he's alive, 124 years old, alive, kind of a live question. And part of the split between members of the synagogue who didn't appreciate being tunneled into and the youth, the 18 to 19 year olds who took it upon themselves to expand 770 Eastern Parkway by hook or crook or spoonfuls of dirt over many years, you know, this was at issue. But it's a Talmudic tradition we could all debate and we could write off as youthful exuberance tunneling unto and into the synagogue. Kids being kids. I did ask my friend the rabbi with tact and sensitivity his thoughts on the current state of the rabbi's actuarial tables. Is the rabbi alive or dead? <laughs> Ask questions. Is, is, is that a tough question? It's not. It's, it's, ask questions. First, you need to learning what is a rabbi. Okay. Oh, what is this? A question for the ages, unanswerable in this moment. Reporting from the borough of Brooklyn, this has been a just investigation. On the show today, Israel faces genocide charges, but first. To give us a perspective on what the Republicans are doing in Congress, we turn to John McCormick, who's a senior editor at The Dispatch and recently conducted an exit interview of sorts with Patrick McHenry. He understands the lay of the land of that entire caucus. John McCormick, up next. 
I've been trying to figure out what's going on with the Republicans in Congress, but who am I to figure it out? I've decided to call upon someone who speaks to and analyzes the Republicans in Congress. John McCormack is newly senior editor at The Dispatch, and among other things, he recently did essentially an exit interview with Patrick McHenry, very important Republican in Congress. The Dispatch also did an interesting exit interview with Kevin McCarthy, and John McCormack joins me. Hi, welcome to The Gist. Hi, great to be here. So before we even start, The Dispatch is a conservative publication. You used to write for National Review. To the extent that it will help our audience orient themselves as to how you think about these things, how do you either define your politics or your approach to politics? What should we know about how you're looking at these things and how you're reporting? Yeah, you know, I'm not shy to reveal that I am sort of a classic, uh, you know, Reagan conservative before Trump, I was just sort of a down the line, you know, uh, hawkish, uh, you know, pro-life, you know, generally for, you know, the conservative views on fiscal issues too. And uh, obviously a lot's changed with Trump. So uh, very Trump critical, uh, you know, I've I've written about that in the past. Um, I, I do a mix of reporting and analysis. I do a little more reporting, but I have, you know, expressed my opinion freely here and there. So that's generally where the dispatch is, you know, so sort of, uh, we would all, I think mostly everybody would still say they're conservatives and uh, just uh, strong objections and criticisms of uh, Donald Trump. So then there is an overlap between Donald Trump and Trumpism and what's going on with uh, sort of the crack up among much of the Republicans in the House. How do you view that? Do you view the Matt Gates, who is certainly a uh, Trump ally, or the... Um, Republicans who ousted McCarthy as a pretty strong vestige of Trumpism or something else entirely? I think they are an outgrowth of that, that this sort of, uh, you know, I don't know how you want to describe it. You know, they're they're playing for the crowd. They're going on. They're trying to just be bomb throwers. There's not really much of an ideological uh, base to what Matt Gates is doing. It's just, uh, I'm against the establishment. So I'm going to depose them. They didn't get a great deal on spending, even though Matt Gates has never proposed to my knowledge, any sort of real spending cuts. There's no Paul Ryan agenda that these guys are for. They're just against, uh, you know, they just want to take a scalp for the t- sake of taking a scalp and then going on Steve Bannon's podcast and, uh, maybe Fox news to crow about it. And so you've seen a lot of retirements, um, people like Patrick McHenry, who was a, you know, two decades in the house, uh, started out as a bomb thrower himself, uh, began to see his role more as an institutionalist, uh, began, you know, you know, he was a chief deputy whip. Um, he was chairman of the financial services committee. He was Kevin McCarthy's essentially right-hand man, which is how he became the, uh, speaker pro tempore, uh, after McCarthy was deposed in October. Yeah. And is that the natural progression of things? Maybe it correlates to age or just the age we're living in, but you come in young, you're a bit radical. By the time you leave, hopefully you're more seasoned and tempered, but at least I guess in uh, McHenry's case, he's, I think, uh, disillusioned. Yeah. I think that's a fairly natural arc in politics in general, right? You come in, you might be a bomb thrower, you might be optimistic um, and sort of <laughs> you get a little jaded, a little cynical. But um, yeah, I think that makes sense. Why did you conclude from your talk with McHenry that he is and should be considered an institutionalist? And what does that mean in the scope of what we're talking about with the comportment of the current Republican Party and the Republicans in the House? Sure. I mean, I I think, you know, he, uh, the the incident where McCarthy was deposed and McHenry had to step up um, 
and B, the speaker pro tempore, it sort of demonstrated the fact that he had really thought through these things from an institutional level. There were a lot of um, analysts, scholars, uh, you know, some conservatives that I admire, people like Ramesh Panuru, um, said, listen, the speaker pro tempore, he can do whatever he wants. If you look at the text of the law, the constitution, he can just act as speaker. You should go ahead and do that. And I talked to McHenry. He said, you know, he had read through, you know, the, 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 the parliamentarian in the house warned him. He said, listen, everything you do, we're in an unprecedented situation. There's never before been a speaker of the house deposed, uh, by this motion to vacate procedure. So everything you do and everything you say will set a precedent. And McHenry had really thought through it. He, uh, I think he might have been wrong on the merits. I think the Speaker pro tempore could have brought forth legislation, could have been acting. But McHenry made this key point, which is that, listen, the House will put off the hard thing because it's the hard thing. He had to make them feel pain. He had to shut everything down. So it took them three weeks. It took them three weeks of pain to get to a new speaker. And I think that just demonstrated that he was really thinking through things from an institutional level. Um, he also has a grasp of like why the budgeting process is broken. Let's just go back. What were the pressures on McHenry to expand the powers of the speaker? Who was pressuring him? What did they want him to do? There wasn't a lot of pressure, but there were people out there, uh, you know, respectable, responsible conservatives who said, listen, you can make a deal with the Democrats and go ahead and just move forward. You know, we, we don't want to, I think there was a view, I share this view that you don't want to reward the Gateses of the world with getting an even more conservative or more right-wing, whatever you want to say, mega uh, speaker of the house. So I think that there was a strong case that McHenry won. He legally had that authority. There was this post 9-11 law that established what exactly, who's in power when the office of the speaker becomes vacant. And uh, it had never come into play before, but the speaker of the house writes down a list of names. McHenry was at the top of the list. And I think he could have started moving legislation and he could basically taken on the job of speaker. And I think enough Democrats, you know, two weeks in after all the frustrations, I think enough Democrats, enough Republicans would have said, yeah, well, let's go with this. This has been a disaster. This is a, this is a, a clown show and let's move on. But McHenry thought this is not what's best for the institution that, you know, we need a real speaker. We don't need this sort of ad hoc speaker pro tempore pretending to be the speaker. Um, and I thought that showed sort of a, a real care and, and understanding of the institution. Yeah, he uh, at one point joked that he's going to lock the Republicans in a room and withhold food and water until they united behind the leader. But I saw what he was doing is not giving the caucus an easy way out because he thought that, well, you tell me, you talk to him, because he thought that the... Um, I guess it would, whatever resulted wouldn't rest on a very sturdy foundation. And so he wasn't exactly trying to, you know, be the uh, paternalistic figure who ordered the Republican caucus to do the right thing and get their just desserts. But he kind of looked two moves ahead and said, if I take the caucus off the hook, whoever, whatever results is not going to be permanent. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, there is no reason why they can't keep using this motion to vacate, which is only, or again, you know, it takes one member to force a vote on whether we're going to depose the speaker. And they could have just done that to McHenry. They can even do that to Mike Johnson right now. Um, I think you, you hear some rumblings uh, that that might happen with Mike Johnson. I'm skeptical that that will happen. It only takes one person. So I can't get into the minds of whether Matt Gates or another guy like him thinks that there is some advantage to be seen fighting this no good, kludgy, compromise between uh, the Senate Democrats and House Republicans and House Democrats. But at the end of the day, they're in an election year. They just went through a month long process, which is, again, why I thought 
McHenry was smart to make it clear that if you do this, you're going to be in a just it's going to be pain for three weeks or a month or six weeks. Uh, we're just going to sit in a room and do nothing and keep voting until we get a new guy who can't really get that much better of a deal. You've got it. Dem- Democrats have power in the Senate. Republicans in the House. There's a Democratic president. The problem is that it's structurally that, that problem. Well, you're you're right. You're speaking logic to me. You what your analysis seems sound. It seems almost unassailable. But here, Mike Johnson has struck a bipartisan deal. They're going to fund the government. That essentially is what signed McCarthy's death sentence. So, what's the difference? That's a great question. Again, one person can force a vote. We could be. We could be in this, you know, disaster for Republicans again. I think the difference would be that one, the you know, the Gates eight, those bomb throwers, I think that they don't want to be seen as just being total lunatics. You know, they want to say they want to claim that they got a victory, right? So if you're one of those eight or nine people that deposed uh, McCarthy, you gotta say, Oh no, we got something better, obviously. Oh, and this is all Mac- McCarthy's fault. He just put Johnson in a bad situation and he'll he'll get he'll do better the next time. But I don't think that the the eight people that joined the Gates and his comrades that they want to go through this again. Now are, is there somebody else? Uh you know, a Chip Roy or something? Maybe, but I I don't know that that's going to happen. I think I think that the fact that we're in an election year and we just went through a month of this uh clown show means that they won't do it, but again, I can't I can't predict whether one Republican will seek some advantage here and whether, you know, Democrats will uh, you know, bail out Johnson this time or uh, whether they'll vote the same way they did on McCarthy. Do the Republicans who forced out McCarthy and perhaps are upset with a bipartisan deal at all? And, you know, honestly, to give them the benefit, every benefit of the doubt, have um, strong logical convictions about government funding and needing to do something about it to wor- to address very real problems of the deficit and the debt. Do they, in your opinion, have a long-term or medium strategy that will serve their interests? Or do you think that it's very hard, the future is unknowable, so what they can do is you know, get some scalps in the meantime and maybe hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, if the question is, are they going to actually solve this problem of government spending, long-term debt issues, long-term deficit issues? I think that's just impossible. You know, No, but I guess my question is more, do they honestly think this is the way to do it? Or do they think that they're on the right side of the issue? And if they make noise and show, you know, make some, um, public demonstrations about how bad the issue is, that's all we could really hope for. Yeah, I think that's right, that they're making public demonstrations. I can't believe anybody actually thinks that Democrats are going to agree to, you know, trillions of dollars of cuts in domestic social spending. You know, that's something that Republicans couldn't do themselves when they had control. Or or Republicans would want to raise taxes. Which is right, another right, way to address right. the debt and deficit. Right. Yeah, of course. So, but yeah, Republicans couldn't do this. They didn't want to do this when they had the White House and both chambers under Trump. So, why on earth would you f- think that Democrats are going to cut social spending when Republicans weren't willing to do this themselves when they had, you know, a lot more leverage? So, when Gates, Roy, others in that group, when they do shut down the government, but in your analysis, maybe don't go so far as to deposing Johnson as Speaker of the House. 
Does that indicate that they think that there is a limit to the point they're making? Or as I see it, they, who knows, different people have different motivations, but let's just take Chip Roy as the example of someone who's more or less rational within that group, right? He thinks we have this terrible problem. What do we do to address this problem? We have to make big, bold stances. And so we do. And there goes Mike McCarthy. On the other hand, perhaps he's thinking, if we do this time and time again, we're going to undercut the point that we're trying to make, that the dysfunction that we thrust upon the government with never having a Speaker of the House will actually be seen as worse, might even be worse than the debt and deficit. So do you think that's what's going on? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that someone like Chip Roy, you know, he's a staunch, you know, fiscal conservative, staunch conservative on immigration. Um, I think that he thinks that he can, you know, show that he's standing and fighting. He can basically take sort of the Ted Cruz approach to Obamacare and that will uh, you know, establishes conservative bona fides. You have to remember that Trump is against Chip Roy because Chip Roy actually supported. You know, I know. Uh, <laughs> just everything's personal with right. Trump. Yes. So, so Chip Roy, you know, when the, when the chips are on the table, he voted the right way on January sixth, um, and has and has managed to you know win. He identifying with the chips. Yes. Yeah. Right. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and Trump has actually threatened recently because Roy is for DeSantis. He's threatened uh, a primary challenge, but Roy's already you know two years ago he one re-election with like 75% of the vote. So I don't think that's really going to happen there. And of course, the only reason we have to worry about every individual member of the House is because everything's so close. But to go back to uh, McHenry, do, so we've articulated that there is a Matt Gates uh, bomb-throwing eight theory of the case, which is you do these things because the deficit's this huge problem and you have to you know, stand athwart history and say no. What does McHenry say he believes that the debt and deficit are a problem. What are his ways to actually address it? Because he doesn't think that deposing anyone who makes a bipartisan deal with the Senate is the way to go. What What are his action items or his plan? I mean, he sort of made, it was more broader comments that he made to me. Um, he talked about things like, you know, basically the only thing that gets done right now is this one big spending bill when we should actually be having hundreds of bills passing at the staff level. He says this needs to be done by, again, building out the expertise at the staff level. Um, you know, people like McHenry, he was on board with the Paul Ryan ideas, but I think, you know, of, you know, we're going to reform, sorry, reform Medicare for people under 55. Um, the lesson that the party writ large took was, hey, Mitt Romney lost in 2012 uh, by running with Ryan. Uh, Donald Trump won the primary in 2016 by opposing Ryanism. Uh, therefore, we're not going to talk about these uh, big, you know, entitlement problems uh, absent some bipartisan debt commission deal, which to my mind is just not going to happen without some sort of crisis hitting first. And I don't know what that crisis will look like. Uh, it hasn't hit yet, but it just seems to me there's no, there's not political will to really tackle the deficit and debt on w without, unless some crisis forces both parties to come together someday. Does McHenry bemoan the importance of primaries and how it, they just are basically a means to decide on the most quote unquote conservative candidate in many districts. He didn't get into that, but that's obviously what he's talking about when he says that right now the incentives are, you know, fame in the house. You know, it's not about you're going to have very little ability to actually pass a lot of legislation uh, because of the way everything is centralized, you know, with, you know, one or two big spending bills in a year. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's, that's obviously a problem. I think he would have been fine himself, but just after 20 years, uh, he was also termed out. So he, the Republican conference itself, it's, this isn't a House of Representatives rule. It is a Republican House rule that you can only serve six years 
as a chairman of the committee. So he his six years are up on the Financial Services Committee. His best buddy, Kevin McCarthy, was just opposed to Speaker of the House after 20 years. I think he just thought, why am I sticking around here? But there's also a lot of general you know, disillusionment that I think he didn't get into. Um, you know, I, I forget the exact numbers, but I think there was just a report on, you know, a high number, both of Republicans and Democrats leaving the house and just a general disillusionment on both sides of what are we here for? What are we doing? Am I going to, I'm going to go through another, you know, another, another Biden administration, another Trump administration, what's going to change? Um, you know, the people who want to get on cable TV are ridiculous and what, what are we accomplishing here? So I think there's a, just a general disillusionment that again, people like McHenry, they want to put on a happy face. They want to say, I am, I'm optimistic that things are so bad right now that, well, of course we've got to, we've got to fix things. We're going to fix the budgeting process. Everyone realized we have a broken budgeting process in the future, but, um, I'm not quite that optimistic. I understand why McHenry wants to go out on a, on a positive note, but you can't help but look at his, the, the real reasons, the unarticulated reasons as just being disillusioned with the whole mess that just happened in October. And, you know, in general, what are they accomplishing? Gridlock? Well, what do you think? What do you think the, is the way forward? Uh, I, I could tell you one conclusion I've come to, which is that uh, much of our government and definitely the House of Representatives is simply ungovernable if there is only a slim majority. You can't have a body with hundreds of members where three have access to the brakes, for instance, you know, on this uh, on this fast moving train. But what do you think the way forward is from what you've seen and what you've and, and that's a question of what what is good and what's I mean, I think I'm a like I said, I'm a pre Trump conservative. I think the filibuster is generally a good thing that, you know, to do big changes, it should take sixty votes in the Senate. Like you said, it should there should be a real national consensus if we're gonna have a national law. And so obviously, so yeah, so what can actually get accomplished? You can accomplish right, certain right. So, things. But big changes, mm-hmm. I, I think I, you know, I think what you're saying is plausible. I am close to agreeing with you, but that's different from just funding the government, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah, you need, you need a, you need a big consensus. You still need to overcome a filibuster to fund the government. And so you need, you need a big consensus, which means that the left and right flanks are just always going to be unhappy with whatever, but as long, yes, as long as there are not 60 senators of one party and a majority of the other party. You're always going to end up with some big compromise that nobody likes on spending. It usually means something basically sticking with the status quo, hence the continuing resolution that we continually have. And maybe some extra spending for things like, you know, when a when a war um, with a major ally in Europe, uh, you know, pops up. But that's basically where. And so, I mean, yeah, there's, grid, there's gridlock. There's division because we, the American people, are divided. And until... We, the American people, vote in one party or the other. You're not going to have a lot of uh, a lot of movement on a lot of legislation. John McCormick is a senior editor at The Dispatch. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Tomorrow, the International Court of Justice in The Hague will hear an application from South Africa charging Israel with genocide. The case will be hard to prove for reasons we'll get into, but don't be surprised if the ICJ grants a provisional measure of protection, which Israel is signatory to the genocide treaty, will be bound by, but in practice will 
ignore. Even though the Palestinian population has increased tenfold during the time that Israel has been a state, and even though the military's actions in Gaza have a purpose, and there is no concomitant incursion into the other larger Palestinian population center, the West Bank, nor with the Arab citizens of Israel, it's possible under international law for Gaza alone to be considered an act of genocide. But let us look at the definition. First, here's what genocide is not, according to the Genocide Convention of 1947, quote, the infliction of losses, even heavy losses, on the civilian population in the course of operations of war does not, as a rule, constitute genocide. In modern war, belligerents normally destroy factories, means of communication, public buildings, etc., and the civilian population inevitably suffers more or less severe losses. It would, of course, be desirable to limit such losses. Various measures might be taken to achieve this end, but this question belongs to the field of the regulation of the conditions of war and not to that of genocide. Okay, so what is genocide? It is, quote, the killing of members of a group committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. They are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, ethnic group emphasis part, but also emphasis, if you want to go back, intent. The transcripts of the Rwanda trials show that intent was a major stumbling block. The trials of Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karadzic, the Bosnian War, it all hinged on showing intent. Those gentlemen were found, gentlemen, were found guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity. But in fact, in all the Balkan wars, widely considered to be genocidal events, the only event actually proven to be genocide was Srebrenica. This isn't to say Israel might not be found guilty of other crimes against humanities in other fora, but genocide is a stretch. I don't think Israel is committing genocide. I think it is killing Palestinians, many of them, not because it wants to kill Palestinians, but because it wants to kill the Palestinians who carried out the October 7th attacks, i.e. Hamas. Perhaps Israel's insufficiently cautious about killing non-guilty Palestinians, and perhaps Israel is too certain of its tactics or overly indifferent to the fate of innocence or too accepting of the idea that there are no innocent Palestinians. But I do have to say, after reading the case, that while I think the charge of genocide does not apply, it is clear who is to blame for a lot of the momentum behind it. And you thought I was going to say Hamas, but I'm not. Let's get past that apportionment of blame. And I also don't mean South Africa or propagandists or the UN in general. I'm talking about many, many Israeli officials who wantonly, brazenly, unethically, and stupidly stepped up and just poured their thoughts into this prosecutor's brief, which references, quote, members of the Israeli Knesset who have repeatedly called for Gaza to be, quote, wiped out, quote, flattened, quote, erased, and, quote, crushed on all inhabitants. I checked out all those quotes. Now, the member of the Knesset who said crushed on all its inhabitants is Eliu Revivo. His tweet does deserve some more context. He saw the film of Hamas atrocities. And he witnessed the hero's welcome that Hamas got. And he wrote on Twitter, This testimony, which joins a multitude of shocking testimonies and joyous demonstrations of children, young people, adults, and old men, women, and men, brought to me the understanding that every resident of the Gaza Strip who does not fight against the Gaza terror is a son of death. 
I am convinced it will be possible to evacuate those few sane people from the Strip. But then, yes, it does go on to say after those few sane people are evacuated, which of course hasn't happened, Israel should crush all of Gaza. Other than that one, the other quotes were fairly well represented. Members of the Knesset did just call for flattening and wiping out Gaza. The application expands beyond officials arguing, quote, similar genocidal rhetoric is also commonplace in Israeli civil society, with genocidal messaging being routinely broadcast without censure or sanction in Israeli media. And here's a quote they link to, David Mizrahi Verthaim, or Verthaim, he says, one principle that needs to be abandoned today, proportionality, need a disproportionate response. May Israel see what she is hiding in the basement. If all the captives are not returned immediately, turn the strip into a slaughterhouse. Let's first put aside the notion that a government should censure even its loudest or worst voices or else face international sanction. I mean, after 9-11, I remember Ann Coulter advocating killing and converting foreign leaders. As a citizen of the U.S., I am glad my country wasn't punished for her remarks. But yes, that radio presenter you heard from who is a rabid right-winger advocated throwing out the rules of proportionality. But the point is, Israel didn't, even if some Israelis said they should. You can make the case, and this very petition does, that Israel has violated the rules of proportionality, but they have not tossed them aside in order to execute a genocide. The military didn't fire all the lawyers they employ in order to make sure that they comply with international law. Now, the presence of a lawyer doesn't mean... You certainly do comply, but a citizen advocating for violating rules is not proof that the rules have been violated. Now, if it were higher-ups saying those things and making claims about Israel disposing of proportionality, it would be different. And actually, actual cabinet ministers have made some very serious and horrible claims. They're all in the application. Itmar Ben-Gavir, far-right politician, did say, to be clear, when we say that Hamas should be destroyed, it also means those who celebrate, those who support, and those who hand out candy, they're all terrorists and they should be destroyed. That's broad. In early November, Minister of Heritage Amakai Elihu did say that Israel's options, including using nuclear weapons in the Gaza Strip, genocidal intent. Except the notion was disavowed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, and that minister was suspended. Then there are the statements of Netanyahu himself and the other two powerful ministers in the War Council. Actually, just one in particular, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. He got a lot of coverage when he used the phrase human animals. It was clear to me that he did not mean everyone in Gaza, but he meant Hamas. Here he is using the phrase while wearing a flak jacket, having traveled to the region. He is saying, you saw what we are fighting against. We're fighting against human animals. This is the Daesh, meaning ISIS, of Gaza. (laughs) The application cites a UN agency's description of the phrase human animals as, quote, such statements make the Israeli government's intent to destroy the Palestinian people in part or in whole absolutely and consistently clear. But later, I don't think it was clear because later Gallant has said, and our war against Hamas, the Hamas terrorist organization, is a war. It's not a war against the people of Gaza. And Isaac Herzog, Israel's president, repeatedly makes this point clear. Uh, unfortunately, in such a dense areas, there could be um, uh, damages that are very tragic. We know it, but we do, according to international law, we alert people 
very cautiously, so there's no indiscriminate bombing. And we take, uh, we seek advice and exchange opinions and views with our partners. One thing is clear. Uh, the people of Gaza are not our enemy. The enemy is only Hamas. And we are fighting Hamas and its partners. So when leaders express clear non-genocidal intent, it doesn't matter. But when they make statements that could be interpreted, but could be misinterpreted as endorsing genocide, those are the only statements that should matter? Well, in fact, both statements are evidence. And importantly, Israel's actions, that's evidence. The high death toll is evidence. The lengths Israel goes to to warn and avoid civilian casualties and the steps that they failed to take to ensure that outcome. It's all evidence. The scrutiny of the world was inevitable, and it is fair. Israel's stance shouldn't be, we reject such scrutiny. It should be, we rise to it. And the members of Israel's society, and especially Israel's government, who are brazen, incautious, and outrageous, do bring this scrutiny onto themselves, which I guess would be one thing, but they bring the scrutiny onto everyone else, all their fellow citizens. What's troubling is that I would say the far-right bomb throwers should face consequences. But guess what? They do face consequences. That's one of the reasons they say such things. The consequences is their continued popularity within their own communities and constituencies. They endanger Israel as a whole as they advance their own cause. And I guess you could say this, as we know in the United States, is one sad consequence of living in a democracy. And this all brings me to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Though not an orchestrator of genocide, he is a calculating and deeply cynical player. And it has been plausibly argued that he actually likes the international scrutiny. Oh, he rejects the charge of genocide. But when he sees the nations of the world seeking to isolate Israel, it helps him. His pitch will be, I am the only one who stands up to them. It will even go so far as to say, I am the only one who will not bend to President Biden. So he doesn't mind the outrageous statements to his right. And when Israelis express an ugly rage that does not reflect well on the world stage, does not reflect well in court filings, Netanyahu is more likely to use that rage towards his own ends rather than to quell it. As we learned with the literal arming of the Hamas terrorists who thrust Israel into war, Netanyahu is giving Israel's enemies ammunition. And that's it for today's show. It is produced by the quaint Mallards. That would be Corey Wara, just producer. Joel Patterson, just senior producer. Michelle Pesco runs our special projects division at Peachfish Productions. If you wish to advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperjeeperu, do Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>